Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 163, The Cousins' War. Well, despite the matherings and distractions of the Anglo-Saxons, we are here at last, the Wars of the Roses. I think I might have mentioned that I have a long personal relationship with the Wars of the Roses, which I think may well reflect and illuminate one of my many personal character flaws, a weak sense of proportion about what is and is not really important. So back in the 70s when I was a nipper, Leeds United lost a match. I suspect it was an FA Cup final, which would mean it was Sunderland that stole the prize from that matchless Leeds team of the 1970s. But oddly, it's Chelsea or Arsenal that sits in my mind. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is that the storm of tears and howling that accompanied the defeat has remained family law with my mother, at least, ever since. And it's a bit the same with the Wars of the Roses. Insult Richard, Duke of York, and you insult me. Cast doubts over the character of Edward, Earl of March, and I will challenge you to a fisticuff or five. Our household in my youth was mildly divided. Wouldn't want to go any further than that. But my father was a Lancastrian, my mother from York none of which sensitivities stopped me from voicing an opinion, of course, about which, bless him, my father never complained. So, not quite sure why I'm telling you all of this, but I suppose I have two reasons. Firstly, to warn you that I'm biased. And secondly, because it is rather odd that the conflict we call the Wars of the Roses, which essentially can be seen, though rather simplistically, as an aristocratic squabble, should still survive in the public memory. The cricket county match between Yorkshire and Lancashire, for example, is still called the Roses match, I believe. 
So, for some rather arbitrary reason, I have decided to go for the opening of the Wars of the Roses here, hovering somewhere between 1451 and 1453. Why, I hear you ask? After all, if you hopped onto the interweb, you'd quickly conclude that the Wars of the Roses happened between 1455 and 1485. And OK, that's fine. Probably the main reason I've started it now is because I just can't wait another year. So, incontinence, basically. And 1455 is the date of the First Battle of St Albans, so fine, fair dues, reasonable place to start it all off. But, let me say that I have some excuse in not really knowing when to start this. And indeed, I should be apologising to all you right-minded Yorkists. Because in the 16th century, you would have told me right and proper that it all kicked off in 1399. That it was the usurpation of the throne and the murder of the divinely appointed King Richard by the evil Bolingbroke that caused the original offence and where the conflict really began. On the other hand, you could listen to a blizzard of historians who have argued the toss ever since. I've noticed that historians have a kind of love-hate relationship with dates. On the one hand, they absolutely hate and despise all this thinking in centuries and eras kind of thing. So we have a big one coming up, for example, where at one minute past midnight on January the 1st, 1486, every single soul in England changed from being a medieval person to being a modern one. Now, I can understand the irritation with such a daft concept. On the other hand, name me a historian. Name me a historian who hasn't written some piece somewhere about why it should instead be some alternative set of dates that defines some era or other. And so it is with our current subject. There are start dates that range between 1399, 1450, 1455. And even the end date is in dispute. Although 1485 and Bosworth Field is the clear favourite, 1497 crops up as an alternative, or maybe even the execution of poor old Margaret de la Poole in 1541. Actually, it wasn't really until the 19th century that the Wars of the Roses became limited to such a short period as 30 years. And then, I'm afraid, we're going to have to go through that why were they called the Wars of the Roses thing. I am reliably informed that contemporaries called the whole affair the Cousins' War. I did an interweb search thing and found out that Philippa Gregory has done a series called this. I looked at Susan Higginbottom's blog, where she'd done an article about it. And some of her followers' comments about the use of the phrase Cousins' War were really quite grumpy. Upsettingly so, I have to say, and I had to make myself a nice cup of tea to rediscover my war. Well, I like the phrase, hence why I've called this episode The Cousins' War. And I swear on my dog's silky ears that I've never heard of Philippa's series before I did so. Because in essence, as probably we'll discuss at some point, that's pretty much exactly what it was. A war. Between cousins. In it. However, it would be hard to argue that the Wars of the Roses is not much more poetic a phrase. And I am not with the doom merchants and killjoys who mutter that it was only Walter Scott who made it up and it ought to be expunged from the dictionary and punishable by being thrashed by a bunch of nettles and a croquet mallet. Because the rose idea and motif is right there from the off. 
why else would Henry VII have made such a play of the Red Rose to sit alongside the White Rose of his wife, Elizabeth of York? At Crowland Abbey, the chronicler there wrote, The tusks of the boar were blunted, and the Red Rose, the avenger of the White, shines upon us. So the imagery was all there for someone to have the nous to pick up on and create the unforgettable phrase that is the Wars of the Roses. And one of the people with said nous was almost inevitably the Bloody Bard. Here are the two great enemies of the early years in Billy the Bard's Henry VI. Somerset Let him that is no coward nor no flatterer but dare maintain the party of the truth Pluck a red rose from this thorn with me. Warwick speaking. I love no colours, and without all colour of base insinuating flattery, I pluck this white rose with Plantagenet. So, OK, it wasn't until Walter Scott came along that the actual phrase, The Wars of the Roses, got written. But it was in the air well before that. Opinions about these political shenanigans began well before they ended. If we're talking about winners and losers, then in propaganda terms, it's usually the Tudors who get awarded the crown, largely because, as we know, history is written by the winners. But in fact, it was Yorkist propaganda that won the historical debate for a very long time, however the Tudors tried to stamp it out. In defence of their claim, the Yorkists, without a trace of irony, fulminated against that heinous act of horror, the deposition of a lawful king. Though obviously they'd claim Henry VI wasn't lawful, since they were trying to get rid of him. So it was this appalling crime against God as well as man that had cursed England to warfare and violence. The Bloody Bard took up the same theme in his history plays, in a thread that runs through eight plays from Richard II all the way through to Richard III. What had started as a political polemic, then picked up as drama then, and then moved on to become the basis for historical analysis. Early Tudor historians like Polydor Virgil and Edward Hall made the killing of Richard II the basis for the troubles in their 16th century histories. And only Henry VII and the union of the houses of York and Lancaster finally sewed up the gash in the English body politic and allowed the wound to heal which means that the theme had moved beyond propaganda and become the accepted history. If Seller and Yeatman had been knocking around Shakespeare's day, that's what they'd have represented as the memorable history, that everyone had deposed a rightful king and shouldn't have been surprised that the result was mayhem, death, despair and murder. Somewhere in there was also the theme that maybe, just maybe, it's better to suffer the tyranny of a king than break the divinely ordained way of the world. A deeply alien concept, I'd think, to that of the modern Western world. Anyway, then humanism arrived, and that had a couple of impacts on the whole shebang. First of all, it enhanced the status of history as an area of study, to a degree as a branch of literature, which is interesting, if slightly irritating. Now, the humanist obsession with the glories of Greece and the grandeur of Rome, meant that everyone thought that when they said history, they really meant ancient history. But actually, these guys we've talked about, Polydor Virgil and Edward Hall, 
did manage to spark a real interest in the idea of vernacular history. Now, as you all know, it's the humanists who cause all that trouble about the Middle Ages. By and large, of course, we love the humanists, but there is no one or no thing without its blemish, and their blemish, in my humble opinion, was this thing about the fact that there were but two ages worth considering, the ancient and the modern. Which, of course, is where we get the term, the Middle Ages, and the attitude that the Middle Ages generally sucked. Which is a concept that in itself, of course, sucks. And in this regard, we have now stopped sucking, and yet we are stuck with the term, the Middle Ages. Anyway, the Wars of the Roses fitted neatly into the humanist worldview. Here was the period of wreckage and carnage, the anarchy from which Henry VII rescued a suffering kingdom and brought it into the light from the Dark Ages. Old Victorian Stubbsy had this lovely phrase about the 15th century as the murderous precursor to the delightful modern era. It was as the morning spread upon the mountain, darkest before dawn. At this point, I need to do my very best to avoid duplicating all the verbiage I spewed forth ten episodes ago when I talked about the historiography of Henry VI. But by and large, the world accepted this vision, and the growing interest in all matters historical in the 18th and 19th century just reinforced the view that really the Wars of the Roses were a dark time of hideous ruin and combustion, and that we were all on the way down to bottomless perdition. More and more materials were turned up, and by and large, they did very little to counteract this view. The Paston letters, for example, with poor old Margaret Paston having to defend her house and then castle against all comers. No one really dissented from this view, though we see the start of that most remarkable byway of historical study, the glorification and justification of Richard III. Which, of course, we'll get to in due time, and worries me almost as much as having to do Henry VIII. Everyone has an opinion. I tremble like a leaf in the wind at the thought of the passions I may arouse. Anyway, so then we get a raft of censorious Victorian historians who come down on the poor old Wars of the Roses like a ton of bricks. And the blame is squarely attributed to the nobles. I mean, clearly, they hardly wrote up Henry VI as a hero, but the basic trouble was a bunch of squabbling nobles with too much power, too many liveried hard men in vast retinues, against a weak executive in the form of the king. And that the wars were a time of unimaginable horror. So a chap called William Denton really, really pushed the boat out. The baronage of England was almost extirpated, he cried. The slaughter of the people was greater than any former war on English soil. But want, exposure and disease carried off all but the most murderous weapons of war. Villages and towns were ruined and disappeared. And the causes, the causes went deeper than just a bunch of naughty barons. Quote, The standard of morality could not well have been lower than it was at the end of the 15th century. Lust, cruelty and dishonesty were paraded before the eyes of the people. This is delightful. Victorian judgment, no truck with our modern namby-pamby messing around with careful balance, political correctness, judicious judgments which see history in the context of their time. I mean, I'm not for one moment advocating the Victorian approach, but by heck, 
It'd be nice to just let it rip once in a while with a piece of mindless bigotry, wouldn't it? Anyway, somewhere in the 19th century, a snake entered the garden and the voice of discord appeared in historical debate, although rather put in the shade by the sheer weight of Stubbs's reputation, talent and outrage, and like a weed would persist until it burst into glorious flower in the 20th century. J.R. Green, in 1874, wondered really whether the wars affected all parts of society as much as we might think. I mean, actually, it looked rather like a baronial squabble for the most part. Thorold Rogers, the politically radical economic historian, described the economic situation as one of comparative prosperity and suggested that the disturbances didn't reach much below the ocean surface down into the dark deeps of English society. Then in the 20th century, more folks started to say similar things, that the amount of actual disorder wasn't really quite as dramatic as you might think. Someone pointed out that there were in fact only 13 weeks of actual fighting during the whole event. K.B. McFarlane had a good old hack at the roots of the argument. Bastard feudalism was really no worse, he said, than any other kind of feudalism. It had its roots well before Edward III and lasted well beyond Henry VII. It was really just that same old system of clientage and patronage that had always been there, and indeed has been there in the politics of Rome, as old as the hills. A certain amount of momentum gathered behind this particular bandwagon. In the 60s, the point was made that if you compared it with the French wars, it was a doddle. There's no repeat of the chevaucée, very few sieges, very little of vast armies wandering around killing and eating. Others waded in and said, look, compare it to the continentals generally. England is a land of peace and plenty by comparison to all the mayhem going on over there. And top it all, in the general enthusiasm along comes one S.B. Crimes and says in a conversation that roses had nothing to do with it and there were not, quote, in any meaningful sense, wars. Well, maybe the first three months of 1461 if he twisted his arm. So really, the whole thing didn't exist at all. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Now, of course, these days there are plenty of different lines of inquiry and quite a spectrum of opinion. Writing the Wars of the Roses out of existence is just one of them. There are those that stress the absence of kingship and interpret the wars as an attempt by the magnates to restore the balance of medieval society structured around a king. Or those that say, look, it's all Henry's fault, he's a total loser. Or blame the magnates as a bunch of overprivileged, power-mad factions fighting for local supremacy as much as national leadership. The thing that strikes me as a relatively ill-educated observer of the 15th century, and that is not in any way false modesty, in the ageless cry of the historian, it's really not my period. So I come to it in pretty much total ignorance. But the thing that strikes me is that it is always, always far too easy to see history in terms of national politics. Quite simply, the records are better, there are more sources about it, the story is easier to follow. 
and that this overemphasizes its importance to the rest of society. It's the same now, really. The media obsesses about politics. I'm far more worried about the Rugby World Cup. The second thing that strikes me is that it is also far too easy to be cynical. It's a bit like the Christianity and religion and history debate. Yes, it's true that Christianity did a lot of horrible things, like the Inquisition, but equally it's true that most churchmen wanted to do the right thing, that there was no other force for peace in society in quite the same way. And to follow the same argument, it's all too easy to say that Margaret of Anjou was power-mad, or that Richard of York was motivated purely by power and just wanted to be king. People did believe in something. They did have a very clear view of the way society should be ordered, and its absence both generated a desire to restore the proper balance, but also put the great men and women into a situation they couldn't necessarily control. All manner of folk were swept up with little choice. OK, the last word, of course, needs to go to the ultimate authority, which in this case is Seller and Yeatman, because I seem to have run out of the Ladybird Kings and Queens of England, which is most distressing, I have to say. And to make a serious point, really, if we ask most people about what the Wars of the Roses meant to them, it's, of course, the memorable history they'd probably respond with. And it takes a good deal more than a century to change the received history of England. So here we go, Seller and Yeatman. Noticing suddenly that the Middle Ages were coming to an end, the barons now made a stupendous effort to revive the old feudal amenities of sackage, carnage and wreckage, and so stave off the Tudors for a while. So, that's the historiography thing. Now I'm going to try to deal with this name and family thing. One of the things that has become much, much clearer is the extent to which local politics contributed to the wars, and indeed to the endemic violence of society. So OK, you might accept that really the Wars of the Roses, in terms of the main protagonists, carried on only over the equivalent of 13 weeks of actual fighting. But in the background, as we've discussed in previous episodes, the weakness of royal control resulted in aristocratic violence, and local disputes, feuds and land grabs. Then another thing that is absolutely crystal is that the battlefields were not neatly drawn into Yorkist on one side and Lancastrian on the other. Alliances came, went and shifted. So what you all really need to know is who the main families are, why they mattered and where they started. I've tried to introduce some of the players sneakily over the last few episodes, but there's no avoiding it. I now have to confront you with a blizzard of names you'll instantly forget. I have two pieces of advice for you. Firstly, go to the website, the History of England website. I've tried to put a sort of simple rogues gallery there and have also put some maps which will help you no end. Or hopefully they will anyway. The second bit of advice is go to the website and the family trees I've put up there. Understanding the family tree does help with all of this who's of the royal blood sort of thing which is always rearing its ugly head. If none of that works, sit back, listen to something else, check in when it's all over. So, let's start with the family tree and the royal blood thing. Please refer to the family tree provided in the Wars of the Roses list on the website. Now then, Edward III had five sons. You might like to repeat them after me. In order of age, oldest to youngest, we have Edward the Black Prince, Lionel, Duke of Clarence, then John John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. 
then Edmund, Duke of York, and finally Thomas, Duke of Gloucester. So, Black Prince, Lionel, Duke of Clarence, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, Edmund, Duke of York, Thomas, Duke of Gloucester. One more time, the Black Prince, Lionel, Duke of Clarence, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, Edmund, Duke of York, Thomas, Duke of Gloucester. Excellent. So, the eldest son, the Black Prince, had one son, Richard II, who became king, screwed it all up, and was deposed by Henry Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke claimed he and his Lancastrians were next in line because he was descended from John of Gaunt, third son of Edward III. But I can already see your razor-sharp minds objecting. But hey, hang on just a minute, you cry. What about the line of Lionel, Duke of Clarence? After all, he was second son of Edward III and older than Gaunt. Well, interesting you should say that. Because although you are absolutely right, Lionel, poor chap, had only one daughter. Yes, I know, disappointing, only daughters. I can only share his pain. However, Lionel's daughter Philippa did marry and have children, and their descendants made the mighty Mortimer family, Earls of March. Roger Mortimer, you will remember, hopped into Edward II's bed with Queen Isabella and ruled in the name of Edward III before Edward asserted his rights. Now, as it happens, Richard, Duke of York, is a descendant, then, through his mother, of the line of Mortimer and March. This is why Richard of York's son, Edward, will be given the title Earl of March. So that's Lionel. The claims of his descendants were sort of scotched by the descent through the female line thing. OK, third son, John of Gaunt, married Blanche of Lancaster, hence the royal line of Lancaster with the obsession with the name of Henry, Henry IV, V, VI. But as we know, Gaunt took up with his fancy woman, whose name is... Yes, that's right, Catherine Swinford. Now, they had a line of children, about which you have heard constantly over the last 20 episodes or so, and if you can't get that name, I'm going to be mightily disappointed. Yep, I know you have it all. Beaufort. So, John and Catherine produce a line of little Beauforts who acquire the title of Duke of Somerset. And, of course, we've come across the current incumbent of the title, Edmund Beaufort. I have not given Edmund Beaufort a good press so far, and I make no apology for that, and let me explain why. Although it is very difficult in the 14th century to talk about personality, since there are so few chroniclers, Edmund Beaufort's actions speak loudly. In the thoroughly daft handover of Maine to the French, he made no argument about the strategy, but despite that, and despite the penury of the English crown, insists on being paid 10,000 marks to compensate for his lands there before he'll let the deal go ahead. Then he has the political muscle to get himself made Lieutenant General of France and makes a complete pig's bottom of the defence. He looks mainly to his own safety, abandoning Rouen and Caen. He again has the political muscle or personal relationships to persuade a weak Henry VI and a stiff-necked Margaret to appoint him as Constable of England. Meanwhile, the rest of English-held France, Gascony, will be lost on his watch. Really, although there are many pressures he had to face, lack of money being not the least of them, it's a pathetic record. He doesn't appear to show any contrition for this and clings to power as hard as he can. So, the Beauforts then. They have estates in the south-west that reflects their traditional title of Dorset and south of London. 
Edmund Beaufort's brother, John, the first Duke of Somerset, had committed suicide and he'd left one daughter, Margaret Beaufort, Edmund's niece, born in 1443. Margaret Beaufort is therefore only seven in 1450, but Margaret seems to have had the blood of Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Winchester, rather than her venal uncle Edmund, and Margaret will be someone to watch. Edmund also had a son called Henry, born in 1436, and therefore 14 in 1450. Henry Beaufort is a chip off the old block in the sense he thinks his dad and his cause is great. So, we've done Edward, Black Prince, Clarence, John of Gaunt. The next son of Edward III was Edmund, Duke of York. And I probably don't need to say this, that this is of course the main line of claim for Richard, Duke of York, to the throne. And then we come to the last son, Thomas of Woodstock, Duke of Gloucester. We've mentioned the Staffords in previous episodes, and the current head of that family is Humphrey. Now, once again, the Staffords are descended through the female line from Thomas, Duke of Gloucester, by Thomas's daughter, Anne. Humphrey Stafford had earned himself the title of Duke of Buckingham. You might remember from last time that the Hollands, Dukes of Exeter, found it difficult to make ends meet. Unlike the Hollands, Buckingham did not so struggle. He had lands in Wales, the West Midlands and Kent. His marriage to the Westmoreland side of the Neville family and links to the Beauforts through his mother-in-law also helped his connections. So Buckingham had immense resources. By and large, he tried to deploy them to keep the peace, but when the chips were down, it was to the King, Henry, that Buckingham was really loyal. Buckingham appears to be a moderate politically, but he couldn't be considered to be a gentle sort of guy. Actually, he had something of a vicious temper. He'd had a run-in with John Holland, though having a run-in with a Holland was hardly a sign of a bad temper, just good sense. But he'd apparently tried to stab Joan of Arc, and was to treat Cecily Neville very severely when she was under his control. So, those are the royal contenders. Lancaster, York, of course. Beaufort. Stafford. And, of course, those are important families. But for the real story, you have to go north, to the families that were, for all practical purposes, kings in the north. The Percys and the Nevilles. Now, if you're really, really bright, you might remember that the Neville clan has actually rather split within itself. The so-called senior branch, the Earls of Westmoreland, were rather stitched up by Ralph Neville, the first Earl, and his second wife, Joan Beaufort. Joan was obviously keen that it would be her children from the marriage that profited from all Ralph's lovely lolly, rather than his children by his first marriage to Margaret Stafford. And so, with typical Beaufort fair-mindedness, she persuaded Ralph to divert as much of his inheritance as humanly possible to her own children. Ralph's successor as Earl of Westmoreland who, you won't be surprised to learn, was also called Ralph, struggled all his life to recover from the evil stepmother's influence, but essentially failed. Richard Neville, though, Joan's eldest son, was a completely different kettle of fish. He'd swept up the Montague inheritance, the Earls of Salisbury, by marrying the sole heiress Alice Montague, and by so doing he had also become the Earl of Salisbury by right of his wife, the Nevilles had gradually gained greater control in the western marches of the northern border with Scotland, though the Perses continued to control the eastern marches. But by the close of the 1440s and into the early 1450s, Salisbury challenged and even surpassed Percy's power, and they were threatening the claim of the Perses to be the acknowledged kings of the north. 
1450, the 15-year-old Salisbury was in the ascendancy all the way across the northern marches. Oddly enough, though, the senior Percy, Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, seemed content to live with Neville dominance. But Percy's son, also called Henry Percy, surprise, surprise, was something of a firebrand and chafed at his father's patience. It needed a strong royal hand to keep the kings in the north under control. If that strong hand was not there, the result could be open warfare. Now Salisbury, as I said, was 50 in 1450, but he incidentally had a son, also called Richard, who was 22 years old in 1450. By a couple of lucky deaths, the younger Richard Neville inherited the massive Warwick estates of the Beecham family and became the 16th Earl of Warwick again by the rights of his wife. Warwick, who will go down in history as Warwick the Kingmaker, isn't really engaged in taking part in national politics at this time. Taking over a vast set of estates was never as easy as it sounds, poor lamb. There were always some folks and pesky relatives trying to eat part of the pie. A cousin called George, for example, was claiming estates in Wales. So for the moment, Warwick continued to keep his distance and leave leadership of the family to his dad, the Earl of Salisbury. So look, there are a lot of people and families to manage. Exeter, who we heard about last time, Somerset, Salisbury, Warwick, Buckingham, in addition to the main players of York and the King. There are just a few more it would be criminal of me not to introduce you to, but I think you've suffered enough for one week, so I'll move the Mowbrays and the Dillapools on to next week, when we'll also get back to the action. So that's it for this week. Remember to go to the website if you possibly can, and look for the Wars of the Roses section as well as this week's post. I have some thank yous for donators. Mr F, I shall indeed keep up the good work. Edward, Hugh, Paul and Robert. And I must say a special thank you for all those folk who make regular donations. I feel quite tearful when they come in. This week, therefore, to Nancy, Mary, Oak, Bernard, James and Russell. So, thanks for listening, everyone. Good luck and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 